0: Walter's perspective in that video uh, on sharing his faith with others in a very natural, sort of non-forced way, as people approach him looking for conversation, looking for answers about his faith and about God. And we've been uh, talking about this throughout our sermon series, The Acts of the Apostles, as we uh, traveled along with these early followers of Christ, and most of all with the Apostle Paul, of course, who never seemed to have to force conversations on people about his faith with them. Uh, he was never working an evangelism program or uh, a system for getting the word out about the gospel. Paul just simply went to the places where the spirit of God was leading him um, into the most populated places in each city. And when he got there, he would just be Paul, right? He would set up his leather working tent making business. He'd go to the local synagogue to worship. He'd make new friends and do things with him. He would go to the town square, the marketplaces, and as people would encounter him, they could tell that something about him was different, genuine, um, humble, and yet he was confident. And so they would invite him. Sometimes they'd outright ask him to tell them about his faith. The leaders of the synagogue would ask him. Roman and Jewish leaders would ask him. And individuals would ask him about his faith in Christ. And so we see Paul throughout his travels, consistently sharing his faith with other people who would approach him and ask him about it very naturally, which honestly should be common with followers of Christ today. People that are around us should be able to tell that there's something different about us. And I don't mean like a supernatural glow that emanates out of your eye sockets, right? Or your mouth every time you speak. And I, I don't mean superficial outward signs either like wearing Christian apparel or jewelry or bumper stickers or religious language that we use or whatever. All that's fine. But what I'm referring to is that others should see in us the spirit of God and the heart of Christ permeating everything that we do and say and how we do and say things, how we act all the time, how we interact with others all the time, the decisions that we make. And how we come to those decisions. Because if you spend a few hours with someone, even sometimes less, doing just about anything in the span of a relatively short amount of time, you can often learn a lot about a person without, uh, without ever having to actually ask them anything about themselves. Because things like attitudes and convictions and integrity priorities, uh, what they value, what matters the most, uh, how they treat people, those aspects of who we are, those convictions often come to the surface fairly quickly, even in doing small tasks uh, and brief interactions. And so when you live like Jesus Christ commanded us to, and like Paul and the other apostles modeled for us, when you constantly give yourself up for other people, when you're always preferring others over yourself... When you're patient with people, even when they're really messing up and they're really pushing your buttons, uh, when you're kind to everyone, even those who don't earn it and don't deserve it. You know, when I was a contractor, I used to go into Home Depot like five times a day. And I'm just telling you, those people know how to push my buttons. It was just a constant thing when I would go in there in agitation and uh, trying to get business done and it was always seemed to be a problem. But when you treat others with respect even when they're not earning it, when you go out of your way to help people consistently as a part of your daily routine, people notice that kind of behavior because it's unusual, right? Most people don't act that way, not consistently. Certainly all, lots of people do kind things. Non-Christians do kind things, but not consistently all the time. That's at least not common. The majority of people... And that I've observed in this culture, and probably in most, will consistently act on their own behalf first before they will for someone else. So I, I've been training myself. Now, I rarely leave a store, a grocery store, a Walmart, a Home Depot, uh, the feed and seed down here where I buy food for my chickens. I rarely leave a store without either helping someone get their stuff loaded in their car, or at least asking someone if they need my help. You can spend about 30 seconds in just about any parking lot of a store when it's busy. And nine times out of ten, you'll find an elderly person uh, who is alone or a mom or a dad that's juggling a couple of kids trying to get their groceries or whatever else into the car that they have. And of course, I'll just warn you, you have to be tactful about that. You don't want to just walk right up to people and assert yourself into their situation. That's a good way to get tased uh, or or pepper sprayed in a parking lot. never happened to me. But uh, if you see someone, if I see someone struggling with something that's heavy or awkward as I'm walking to my car from several feet away, while I'm walking, I'll say, excuse me, sir, or excuse me, ma'am, do you need help with that? And often they'll say something like, no, thank you. I can manage, but you may be surprised at how often people will turn to you and say, you know what, that'd be wonderful if you could help me. Thank you. And consistently, I find that people are genuinely surprised that a stranger offered to help them. It was kind to them. I'm not saying that doing these simple kinds of acts will lead to then a long, meaningful conversation about Christ with that person. But what I am saying is that as you begin to live your life in that manner, consistently, Helping others, treating others respectfully and kindly, giving your time and resources to those who could use some help, living your life according to uh, biblical standards, morally, that's a big one. As you begin to act like Jesus Christ did on a consistent basis, like the apostles did in front of the rest of the world, consistently, people that are around you will notice. They will. They'll notice that there is something different about you because that is actually uncommon behavior. Most people that I observe and that I'm around for long periods of time generally do uh, their own thing. They go about their own business, uh, typically with little regard to anyone else around them, particularly people they don't know. And other people that see you then living differently, they may not ask you about that right away, but more often than not, they will eventually. And it's usually when their life is in some kind of turmoil or they're looking for answers. I almost never have to go looking for people to witness to. I don't because I consistently encounter others who either ask me about my faith or they'll ask me why I treat people the way that I do or they'll ask me why I do or don't do certain things. I had a long conversation just a couple of days ago with the computer tech at the repair store the other day. He was working on one of our computers from home. And he was asking me why I had this particular program on our computer because it slowed the whole thing down and made the the machine less efficient than it could have been. It was an accountability uh, program that sends a report to whomever um, you assign it to of every single website that you've been on that week. And so we pay an annual fee, my family, to have that on our computers and our phones and our tablets because the internet can be a pretty crazy place and we want to protect our kids and ourselves from the bad side of that as much as possible. So every week my wife and I get a report of every single website that me and her and all my kids have been on. So there's total accountability there and the computer tech guy couldn't understand that. It was like Big Brother and he and he's asking me, "Why would you put this monstrosity of a program on your computer to slow everything down?" And so I got to talk to him about my personal convictions and about my faith. And it ended up being a very natural laid back conversation because number one, he started it and he kept asking me questions and I was simply responding to his questions. Okay. And listen, I'm not trying to make myself look good by the way at all. I have plenty of moments when I'm anything but Christ-like. But the more that I do live like Christ, the more that I find that people approach me and ask me about him, whether they realize that's what they're asking or not, they are. And I'll just, I'll tell you one other quick story. Uh, Because I'm convinced this is by far the most effective way to share the gospel with others. When I was pastoring in Alaska, a girl called the church from a college student from the University of Alaska at Fairbanks. And she said, I'm I'm working on my master's degree in anthropology. And um, I need to, I'm doing a study on uh, religion. And so I'd like to come to your church. And for several months to every service and every function, I have to record all kinds of information, how you write your sermons, how you structure your church, why you do what you do, how all that works, that kind of thing. And I said, sure, that's fine. And she said, well, I need to tell you one other thing. Uh, I'm not a Christian. In fact, I'm an agnostic. I don't believe what you believe. So I'm not there to worship. I'm there to get my work done for school. And I just want to be up front with you. And I said, well, I appreciate that. But of course you're welcome. It's the church, and we want you to come in and and, uh, participate in what we're doing. And so she said, thank you. And so she came, and after the first service, she came up to me, and she said, Pastor, I just want to say thank you again. Um, I actually wasn't going to tell you this on the phone, but this is about the fifth church I've been to. The first four threw me out when they found out what I was doing. Uh, because they were offended that I was there for a school project and not interested in their faith or in worshiping. So I, uh, this is my fifth stab at it. And I said, well, hey, you know, it's not a problem. I'm just glad that you're here. Do you, do you know people in Alaska? And she said, no, I moved up from New York. I don't know anyone yet, just getting started. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, we're having a thing at our house on Friday, uh, pizza, watch a movie. It wasn't a church event, just having some friends over. Why don't you come? You meet some people. She said, oh. Okay, so she came and she met a bunch of people from our church and then she kept coming to church and she's in there recording things, you know, and she's writing stuff down and she's doing her thing every service. And a few weeks into it, she got her car stuck on the side of the road trying to go home in the snow and one of our ladies from the church was driving by and recognized her and she pulled over. And uh, she said, can I help you? And she said, well, I can't get my car out. So she got her in her car, and she took her home. And then the next day, she picked her up and took her to class. And then she got her after class and brought her back to her car. And she got the car unstuck and got her back going again. And it made this huge impression on this poor college student who didn't know anybody in Alaska that this person she just barely met in our church would help her like that. And she was already so thrilled that we were getting to know her and having her over. And every time we would go do something... Outside the church, we'd invite her to come and she was making friends. And then a few weeks later, I was walking out of the grocery store. It's 40 below zero. She's standing there in the parking lot. Her hood is up. She's shivering, looking at the engine of her car. And I said, Hey, what's going on? She said, Believe it or not, my car keeps overheating every time I start it. It's like 40 below. She said, I don't understand that, but I'm afraid to drive it. I said, Okay, well, hang on. So I check in fluids and there's no radiator fluid, right? Liquid in Fairbanks evaporates in like two nanoseconds outside in that weather and so there's no fluid in her in her radiator there's, there's her oil is low and I said okay look let's go back inside where it's warm we'll get a cup of coffee you hang out I'll get some radiator fluid and some oil and stuff and come out and I don't know a lot about cars but I'll top off all the fluids and we'll see if that fixes it and if it doesn't we'll call a wrecker and and we'll get it taken somewhere and get it fixed up and she said, no 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 I can't do that can't do that and I said why and she said, I don't have the money for that. I'm barely here at school. I barely have enough food and, you know, i barely getting by. I can't buy a quart of oil right now. I just bought groceries. I said, I'm, I'm not talking about you. I'm telling you we're going to do that. We're going we're to go buy this stuff. And then if we need to get a wrecker and get your car fixed, we'll take care of it, okay? Come on. And I turned around and I started to walk in the store and I heard something behind me and I turned around. She sat back down in the seat of her car. Her face was buried in her hands and she was weeping. And I said, what's wrong? And she said, I I don't understand why you're being so nice to me. I don't understand why everybody in your church is being so nice to me. She said, the people in this school that I go to class with aren't this nice to me. And I said, listen, it's the love of Jesus Christ. Okay, we've all in our church had a time in our life when we didn't have Jesus Christ. And then he came into our lives and we experienced his love. And it's just really natural and kind of normal for us to share that with other people because he's living inside of us. And so we're just sharing the love of Christ with you. Does that make sense? She said, no, it doesn't, but I like it. And so we took her inside, and we got the stuff, and we got her car, and we got her all fixed up and squared away. And she kept coming to our church doing her project, and then she came one day forward and she accepted Christ as her Lord and Savior. It was awesome. Had nothing to do with one of my great sermons. I wish I could claim it, but it just didn't. Nothing to do with an evangelism program. Had nothing to do with a big altar call. She came looking for Jesus because of how the people in our church lived their lives every day in front of her. That was it. That is the most effective means of evangelism that you'll ever partake in in your life. Simply living like Jesus Christ in front of other people. And and that's what we see in the life of the Apostle Paul as we finish this sermon series today with a message entitled Living Out the Gospel. I was looking back at my notes. We've spent almost a year now working our way through this great book together as we bring the series to a close this morning after over 800 hours of sermon preparation time, over 700 pages of sermon notes, with our final chapter as Paul makes it to Rome. The last stop in his uh, breathtaking travels where God uses him even there to great effect right up to the very end. So as we read through the last part of chapter 28 today, we're going to look at five different aspects of the follower of Christ that we see lived out by the Apostle Paul and the other believers in our story. And these five attributes or behaviors were so consistent in the lives of these early Christians That it had just become a very natural part of who they were. It was simply how they lived their lives on a daily basis. And the really exciting part about this, for me personally, is that I honestly see many of you living this same way. We saw it in Alaska, in our church there, and we see it here at Upcountry Church. People who've made a very conscious decision to simplify their lives and simply live like Christ And and although we're certainly far from perfect, I want you to know today that God is using you to great effect for his kingdom. And I can't help, as I read about the Apostle Paul at the end of his journey, knowing that he was reflecting on all that God had done through him. And we see that in his letters to Timothy, which we wrote to him from Rome. I can't help but reflect on the beginning of our journey. And all that God has done through us just over these past two and a half years. And so today, even as we, as always, will accept this reading of the word as a challenge, an example for us to strive toward. We're also going to reflect a bit on some of what God has accomplished through this church. And not to, not to pat ourselves on the back, by the way, at all. Okay, Rather, this is to remind each of us why we need to keep doing what we've been doing and all the more. Because I honestly believe that if we keep doing what we've been doing, even increase in these five areas of the church, this church, will see an even greater increase in those who decide to follow Jesus and become a part of the body of Christ and continue to be discipled uh, through this ministry. And so today we'll celebrate what God is doing, even as we look ahead and accept the challenge of all that I believe that He wants to do through us in an even greater measure, okay? So let's turn there together. Chapter 28 in uh, the, verse, uh, the book of Acts. We'll pick up our story right where we left off last week at verse 11. We see Paul and Luke and the others, they're boarding another ship now uh, that's going to take them from the island of Malta to where, they're, uh, where they were stranded for the winter on to Rome. Okay, verse 11. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, the ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Rhegium. And after one day a south wind sprang up, and on the second day we came to Pucholi. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they had heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius, and three taverns, to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself. With the soldier that guarded him. Okay, so after three months or so on the island of Malta, it's now somewhere between mid February and and mid March of AD 60. Uh, The weather has become safe enough for sailing on the Mediterranean, and so Paul and the others board a ship. It was most likely a grain ship, Uh, it had the twin gods Castor and Pollux carved on the front. They were said to be um, the, the twin sons of Zeus and Leda. And they would carve them on the front of the boat because it was believed in Greek mythology that these twin gods would protect sailors on their travels, during the travels on the sea. Of course, we know better, don't we? We know it was the one true God that protected all of the men on that ship uh, and, and the previous one. Okay? So let's take a look at our map and we'll see the route our travelers took from Malta to Syracuse to Regium to Picholi and then on to Rome. They're down here where they were stranded for three months on the island of Malta. They're heading straight north to Syracuse, uh, Regium, through the pass, and then up to Pucholi here, past uh, Appius, three taverns, and then, of course, on to Rome. And that's where uh, Paul is now. And so just as promised uh, by God, Paul and his companions make it safely there where given his circumstances, Paul's being treated very well, even permitted to live on his own uh, without a guard, or with a guard, excuse me. But even far better than that, far more comforting than having a nice place to stay, than some liberal concessions in his captivity, is the beautiful expression of encouragement and comfort and love that the local and even the not-so-local Christians give to Paul as he reaches Rome, and even before that in Puccoli. It illustrates very well the first point that I'd like to mention about the church today, about us, okay? Followers of Jesus Christ take care of one another. Followers of Jesus Christ take care of one another. Paul has been through several months now of severe hardship, uh, one after another after another, not to mention the years of trial and struggle leading up to this final journey. And the moment that he arrives on land, Verse 14 says, there we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. So Paul has been through it, right? And at their first opportunity, the first chance that other believers have to gain access to Paul back on land, they take him and the other believers into their homes to take care of them. And then as, as soon as they continue to Rome, verse 15 says, And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the form of Appius and three taverns to meet us. So these Christians heard that Paul and Luke and their friends had made it to Rome. They traveled from out of town. Appius was about 40 miles from Rome. Three taverns was about 28 miles, which, by the way, was much more difficult distance to travel in those days than it is today. Uh, They didn't have a Prius to get in and zip over um, with great gas prices. So this is kind of a difficult thing to do, but they go anyway to take care of Paul and Luke and the others. And Luke makes it clear this was no small gesture as he describes Paul's reaction to their love and kindness. In the back half of verse 15, he says, on seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. That sounds like a a kind of an innocuous statement to make. But the word Paul thanked, the word thanked, and Paul thanked God, that's the word eucharisteo. It's where we get the word eucharist from, which is the description of Holy Communion. So when we celebrate and give thanks for what Christ did, his blood and his body, we're taking the eucharist together. This is the word that Luke describes, Paul thanking God and taking courage. This is a deeply profound sense of gratitude that Paul had toward God. And so he's praising him. His spirits are lifted. He's encouraged by the friendship and love from these strangers who've taken him in, these these followers of Christ. And no doubt both these believers and those in Pucholi brought material provisions for Paul and his friends as well. You remember from earlier chapters, we learned that in Paul's day, There was no government assistance for prisoners. There wasn't clothing or blankets or bedding. Even the food that the prisoners ate came from family and friends who would bring it to them. Otherwise, they did without. And it was known to be very dangerous, particularly if you were going to take a prisoner goods, material goods, over a long distance because they would often be mugged. They'd get attacked and they would get everything stolen from them. So for these guys to travel... Quite a distance to take care of Paul's needs was a really big deal. It was a dangerous risk for them to take. Okay? But Paul's needs are are now being met. Otherwise, he would have had it done without. And these believers in the outlying areas of Rome are taking care of him. Why would they do that? Why would they risk life and limb, go out of their way to take care of these travelers? It's because they were more than random, weary travelers, they were brothers in Christ. And followers of Jesus Christ take care of one another if we're living the way that we're supposed to. You see, it's one thing to do something kind for uh, an unbeliever, to do something helpful for an unbeliever. And we're supposed to do that. But as we read last week in Galatians, we're to hold fellow believers in an even higher regard concerning the way that we take care of each other. To the Galatians, Paul wrote, let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Galatians 6, 9, 10. We're to take special care of fellow Christians. And I realize that that can be perceived as really exclusive and arrogant. But it's also actually the most humble and loving thing that we can do, not only for Christians, but for the rest of the world. Okay? Because as we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ with humility and love... As we take care of one another and we're unified in our love for one another, that is when the world will know that what we say we believe is really true. It's by the way that we treat each other within the body of Christ. It's our our greatest testimony to those outside the body of Christ. Jesus said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Okay? He didn't say, all people will know that you're my disciples based on how tolerant and inclusive you are toward unbelievers. It's not what he said. He said, all people will know if you have love for one another. Fellow Christians, all right? And it, it even shows up in the way that Jesus prayed. In John chapter 17, he prays to the Father these words. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you, for I've given them the words that you gave me and they've received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they've believed that you sent me. Listen to verse nine. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. John 17, 6 through 9. That prayer goes on for about 17 more verses. And at one point, he does pray for unbelievers, specifically the ones that will become believers, come into the faith. The point is we're certainly to pray for unbelievers. Yes, we're certainly commanded to love those outside the body of Christ, those outside of the church. Without question, we are. But the idea that we're to treat everyone the same without distinction between believers and unbelievers is simply incorrect, according to Scripture. It's a misnomer. Okay? We're to take special care of each other within the body of Christ, which is the most loving act that we can make toward those outside the body of Christ. Because through our acts of love for each other, we testify to the truth of the gospel to the rest of the world. So, what does that mean for us today? Well, it means there shouldn't be any hungry Christians in this country. There shouldn't be any hungry Christians hanging out unless they simply refuse to make an effort to provide for themselves, and that's a separate spiritual issue addressed in Scripture. There should never be any Christians sleeping out on the streets. In fact, if we travel to another city or another state and we break down, we fall on hard times, we should be able to go to the nearest church and find food and shelter and care until we're back on our feet. Can you imagine that? Never having to worry about your daily needs, no matter where you are, as long as there's a church within a day's travel of wherever you happen to be, or in the case in our part of the country, within a block's travel, right? And it's not just about material provision either. We're supposed to care for each other emotionally, in relationships, in wise counsel, through prayer. There are lots of ways to love and support each other, and that's how it should be. And I'm so incredibly pleased to be able to say that I've watched you take care of each other in a lot of different ways since this church started. And I've asked Rachel if she would come share a testimony about that this morning.
1: I'm um, a little over two years ago when we knew that God was calling us to this area. And my husband and I were like, okay, we knew we needed to get plugged into a church. We knew our kids would need that support. It was probably one of the biggest changes that they had gone through at that point. Um, but little did we know how much we were going to need our church family at that time. Um, you know, God has always provided for us um, financially, emotionally with the relationships, with the churches we've been in. Um, But our daughter, who was born early, had a health issue, and we had never had to walk through that before, that type of situation. And as a family, um, that was probably one of the most difficult situations we walked through. But God knew before we moved here that we were going to be going through that, and that we were going to need that support from the church And, um, there were so many families here about four that had walked through something similar that were willing to share their experience with us. And that helped during a very difficult time for us. Um, you know, not, not knowing what the outcome would be, knowing that God would be there for us, um, and give us the comfort and peace we would need to get through that. But we, um, I had a low point when we went up to go visit her and Nikki because I knew God could heal her. I'm like, God, I know you can heal her. You were yet. <laughs> Why are we having to walk through this? And um that night, um, I had been I felt I'd been really strong that night. I just had a breakdown and And I was like, God, you know, I just need peace right now. And I had heard other people say, you know, he gave us that peace. I'd heard other families in the church say, he gave us that peace. I'm like, God, that's what I need now. I need your peace. And he brought it it to me that second. And then we came to church that Sunday. And what we needed from our church body was prayer. We're believers that believe that she could be healed, that God was going to touch her body into a miraculous healing in her. And I came up for prayer. Pastor Rob, he called us up for prayer. And you guys came up and prayed with us. And that touched me so much that there were so many believers that didn't care what the doctors were saying. They believed that God could heal her. And um, and just the, the, your guys' time, you donated during that time with bringing our family food. I didn't have to worry about going back and forth in between NICU and cooking for my family. My mom didn't have to worry about that. Um, and I know everybody is so busy here, but that just ministered to us greatly. After prayer that Sunday, we went back to the hospital. I was just hoping, you know, one of the chest tubes would be out. When we, um, When we got up there, it was on Monday, I believe they took both her chest tubes out. The nurses could not believe her recovery. Um, You could tell at that point they weren't anticipating that. And I said, Our church was praying for her. God healed her. Um, God answered our prayers. So I just, you know, we are humbled and just so grateful to be in such a great family.
0: Thank you, Rachel. And I'll tell you, um, and some of you probably know this from being around, but whatever this church has done for these guys, they've returned it on us about a hundredfold. Unbelievable what they've given to this church and, and to this body and to me personally. It isn't a, I'll scratch your back, you scratch my thing. It's just the body of Christ. We take care of each other. That's, that's what we do. And I see these guys offering their time and resources to help this church grow and affect the lives of others. It's what I'm talking about. All of us taking care of one another. That's what we see from these Christians in and around Rome in our story. Let's keep moving. In verse 17, it says, After three days he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. Okay, Paul calls the local Jewish leaders together, most likely the elders of the synagogues of which there were many in Rome and he offers them an explanation not only for his personal innocence but when he says though I had no charge to bring against my nation in verse 19 he's also pointing out the fact that that he's not making any accusations against his own people although he certainly could have all of the false charges and, and uh, beatings that he didn't deserve and of course, Those listening to Paul at this point, to them the obvious question becomes, if you're innocent of any wrongdoing, and if you're not making any accusations against us, then why are we all here? Most of all, why are you in this chain that he talks about? And that wasn't a figure of speech. By the way, uh, just because Paul had been arrested, the word chain in verse 20 is the Greek word uh, "halusis," which is referring to an actual chain. All right. They would take a short length of chain and it would be bound to the arm of the prisoner. And on the other end, it was bound to a Roman soldier. Uh, So Paul is literally chained to a Roman guard when he refers to wearing this chain, verse 20. And so he answers that obvious question to them when he says it is because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. In other words, all of this, this meeting, my reputation, this chain that I'm attached to, it's all about Jesus Christ, right? Jesus is the hope of Israel. And ultimately he's the true focus. He's the reason for all of this. In fact, everything that Paul did was always about Jesus Christ, which is the second point that I'd like to make about us, about the church. Jesus Christ is everything to his followers. He's not only our eternal hope, he's our hope for today. He's our hope for tomorrow and the next day and every day after that. And without Him, there would be no hope. He is the the singular reason for everything good that we could ever hope to attain or to become or to accomplish, to aspire to. Jesus Christ stands alone as the hope of the world, and therefore. He's the epicenter. He's he's the point of convergence where every aspect of who we are and what we do comes into a singular focus with great prejudice and clarity on no one else but the person of Jesus Christ. He stands alone. He's the linchpin of our very existence. He's the giver and sustainer of all life, our redeemer and healer and provider. He's our strength. He's our wisdom. He's our understanding. He's our peace. He's our joy. He's our love. Jesus Christ is our everything. This is why no matter what came Paul's way, He just kept pressing forward with the calling on his life because nothing else mattered to him as much as doing what Jesus had called him to. Jesus Christ was everything to Paul and he's everything to the church today. And if he's not, then we're doing it wrong. Okay. Jesus Christ simply must be at the very center of everything that we do. If what we do is to have any lasting value at all, how we worship, How we teach and study the word, how we give money, how we spend that money, how we treat each other, how we treat those outside the church, how we work, how we play, how we interact, how we lead our families. Every single thing that we do should ultimately have Jesus at the center of it to the point that anytime someone asks you why you're doing what you're doing, you should be able to trace that reason back to Jesus. It's like the guy in the video uh, that we watched earlier and he asked, when he was asked why he and his wife didn't fight much, he said, well, to answer that, I'd have to tell you about my relationship with Jesus Christ, right? He's the reason I stopped to put oil and radiator fluid in a college student's car in Fairbanks, Alaska. He's the reason we feed people in this town all the time. Why we buy furniture and clothing for a man whose house burned down and why we pay people's bills consistently and we give people rides and we buy kids toys for Christmas and we feed people at Thanksgiving and we reach out to people at Easter and we send books out all over our city and we counsel with people that don't go to church here and pray with them. On and on and on and on it goes. It isn't about us, okay? It isn't about, hey, look how great we are, because without him, we're nothing. He's everything that is good in us. He's at the center of all that we do, and that should be reflected in every single life that we touch. I've asked Jen Stoner if she would to come and share a testimony about that.
2: Uh, So before I share, I thought it would be beneficial to let you guys know um, how uh, my husband and I and our our children ended up here at UpCountry. Before we came here, we were serving as missionaries in England, and um, after two years of being there, we had to come back to the States to renew our visa, and uh, so we were here for a couple months, and, and after that, Amount of time we got um, approved for a missionary visa that was good for three years. So we uh, we went back to England expecting that we were going to settle there indefinitely because that's what we feel and we still do feel God's calling us to do. Uh, but after six months, uh, different factors uh, caused us to have to come back to the states, and we were really confused. We were we didn't know what was going on, but we had just learned that. To, to trust God that sometimes things happen and they don't go as planned, and, but he has good reasons for it. Uh, just like rob talking, been talking about, you know, as we follow Paul's journey, how he got wrecked on the island of Malta, and he didn't know why, but God obviously had a really special reason for that. And I think he had a special reason for us coming back to the States, and one of those was being a part of this church. Since we've been here, which has been a little over a year ago, uh, God has just blessed us in so many ways, and I, I one of the the main reasons, uh, main things that I'm just really, really thankful for is that um, obviously all of you, and uh, but we've been able to be a part of a church that is just genuinely and passionately just striving and seeking to keep Jesus at the center of everything that they do. And that was really apparent to me is um, Tim and I, we actually, uh, when we came back, we didn't know how long we'd be here. And so we when before we left England, we were praying about, you know, God, where do you want us to go? And we felt to come to the Greenville area. And when we were here renewing our visa, before we had come and visited this church and we just, we knew that this is a church that God meant us to be a part of. And, um, and so when we got here, we just, I, I, one of the main things is what I'm trying to say is that, um, in thinking about going back to England, I feel like what we're going to carry with us the most is just knowing what it's like to really put Jesus at the center because we, we started talking to Pastor Rob and, and we thought we were going to be here for maybe like several years. But we, over like Christmas holiday, we started feeling like God was calling us to go back to England sooner than that. Like, and so we talked to him and, and I was surprised at his... Response. I thought he'd be really disappointed, and maybe there's a little bit of that there. <laughs> uh, but he encouraged us. He said, you know what, guys, if you feel this is what God's calling you to do, you know, I, I want to support you in that. And I thought, Tim and I, we've been able to help out, be on the leadership team, and and help support, you know, fill in some voids and help as the church grows. And so I know it's going to, you know, he's really, for him to say that, he's. I know that he's really trusting God. That he is keeping Jesus at the center, and he has been an example for us to know how to fully trust God. Um, So, thanks.
0: Thank you, Jen. For the record, I'm not disappointed at all. I am going to slash their tires when they get ready to go to the airport. Uh, No, we are supporting them, and uh, as hard as it is to see uh, folks like this go, we're very much, we want to send them off when the time comes and support them, of course. Uh, And I'll just tell you, One of the things I love so much about Tim and Jen is is seeing Christ at the center of everything that they do in their lives. I mean, they just go wherever he sends them, buy stuff, sell stuff, get rid of this, finally get settled in, leave there, pick up, go. It's wherever he's sending them because they've got Christ at the center of their lives. And it's a great example uh, for the rest of us. We should be able to readily point to Jesus Christ for the motivation behind everything that we do and every relationship that we form, every life that we touch. And that's certainly how Paul lived his life right up to the end, as we'll see. Let's keep reading, and we'll move along in our story. at Verse 21. And they said to him, We have received... Uh, No letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you, but we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. Okay, so they don't know anything about Paul. They don't know anything about the charges against him, but they've definitely heard about the, the church of Jesus Christ, and they point out that it's being spoken against everywhere. Okay? Followers of Jesus Christ should live counter to the culture. That's our third point. Followers of Jesus Christ should live counter to the culture. There was nothing about Paul's spiritual life or motivations that was in line with the culture of his day. He didn't worship Greek gods. He didn't worship the Roman emperor. He didn't worship the law. He didn't serve money. He didn't look to his own interests first. He didn't place himself before others. He wasn't a slave to anything but Jesus Christ. He lived counter to the culture of his day, and the the same should apply to us today. We should be different than the rest of our culture. We shouldn't worship material gain or physical beauty or personal achievements. We shouldn't serve money or political power. We shouldn't put ourselves or our own interests first. We shouldn't be enslaved to debt or drugs or sex or the constant need for superficial affirmation. We should only and wholly be enslaved to Jesus Christ. That is completely counter to the culture. The ideals of the follower of Jesus Christ are always in stark contrast with the culture around them. I understand the need for relevance in the way that we convey the message of the gospel. There's a fancy theological phrase that I bring up from time to time called contextualization of the gospel. It simply means that we we package and deliver the gospel message in a way that makes sense to our audience. And depending upon the culture, wherever you happen to be, the way that you accomplish that can be different, and that's fine. That's why every church in this part of the country has a, a cafe and we serve lattes, because that's a part of our culture, and we want to make people comfortable. That's fine. But there's a big difference between contextualizing the gospel and watering it down because we're so afraid of not being accepted by our culture that we're willing to compromise the parts of it that are indeed exclusive and intolerant. And there are parts of the gospel that are exclusive and intolerant okay if your goal in life is to make everyone like you don't become a preacher right in fact don't bother becoming a christian because if you're truly following christ you'll recognize the elements of the gospel being spoken against in every corner of our society unfortunately that's even in some segments of the church today by definition and calling the follower of christ will always live counter to the culture if we're doing it right will be different than the culture around us and probably you know, even different than some segments of the church in our country. And I've asked Sam, Sandra Hammock, if you would, to come and share a testimony with us about that.
3: Good afternoon, um, I'm sure that that all of you have at some point in your life felt like you weren't part of the group or you didn't fit in, maybe even you were ostracized, and it's not a good feeling. Um, It's also not a good feeling when you watch one of your children go through this. We've been in Greenville for, I guess, 15 years now, and we were members of a very large traditional church in Greenville for the first ten of those. we watched Seth as he, as he got older. Seth is now 16. And we watched him in the youth group um, being left out and pushed aside and ostracized. It was a very hurtful thing to watch. And um, a very wise counselor mentioned to us that we could, as adults, worship anywhere we wanted to. But we needed to find a place that would welcome our son. and and give him a place to fit in. Um, Our drummer over here, who's also our cousin, had posted on Facebook, you guys gotta come, you you need to come to this awesome church. Um, So I asked Seth, do you wanna do that? And and we came one Sunday. We were sitting in the back, one of the back pews and the music was really loud and Seth has never dealt well with loud (laughs) anything. Um, But we were standing and after about the first 10 minutes, I looked over him and said, are you okay? And he said, Mom, we've only been here a few minutes, and I already like this church better than the church we've been in. And so we were invited to come back Tuesday night, which was Awaken Youth, and Seth didn't want to come. Um, Within minutes of our arrival, the youth group was running out to meet him and to pull him in and to make him feel like a part of the group. Um, And that has never ended. Seth now enjoys, um, the one day of the week that he enjoys the most is Tuesday. He looks forward to Tuesday every week because he wants to be with you guys. Um, and last year Seth was baptized. Whereas prior, uh, he told me that for the last year that we were in the other church, he knew God existed, but he couldn't figure out where God existed in his life or that God had a purpose for him. And that has all completely turned around since coming here. You guys, thank you. You are our family and you're our home. Thank you, Sandra.
0: Man, you know, these are the guys, this family, that when winter set in, they're calling me saying, hey, does, does so-and-so, this family over here, do they have heating oil? Do you know, are they, are they warm? Do they need something? You talk about being counter to the culture and putting others before yourself, which is so unlike people today. That's the hammocks, and I so much appreciate uh, the way that they are toward people, no matter whether they're like us or not. They just love people. It's how we're supposed to be. It's the way Paul lived, counter to the culture. And as we continue in our story, and we'll move along quickly, we see that come out even in his interaction with the religious leaders of his day. Let's keep reading at verse 23. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but will never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. With their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Okay, Paul's now preaching to these religious leaders straight out of Scripture. Verse 26 says that he tried to convince them about Jesus both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. That's a direct reference to Scripture. And then verses 25 through 28, he quotes from the book of Isaiah chapter 6, which, by the way, was an extremely exclusive and intolerant passage of Scripture to those who refused the gospel. And yet Paul always taught the truth of God's Word. Right, even when it wasn't popular, and, and the same should be said of us today. This is our fourth point to look at: followers of Jesus Christ should teach the truth of God's word, even when it's not popular. Right, and I'll be brief with this point because it really goes along with our previous one, because teaching the whole counsel of God, as Paul points out in Acts twenty twenty seven, was not popular then, and it's honestly not popular today certainly in secular culture but even in some segments of the American church and it's countercultural even in some churches to teach the whole truth of God's word but popularity was never a it was never a motivation for paul and neither should it be for us there are some elements of scripture that i don't enjoy sharing with people particularly unbelievers, because I know that it will almost always garner a negative response. And I don't like negative responses. I don't enjoy conflict. And I absolutely and completely hate it when I feel like someone is angry or upset or frustrated or disappointed with me. In fact, uh, I very often wish I wasn't wired that way, but I am. And so of all the vocations in the world that God could have chosen for me. I I stand up in front of people and teach the most controversial message in all of human history, the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've had to go into hospital rooms when an unbeliever is dying and their family is there and they're not Christians either. And you're faced with the choice do I simply try to comfort and reassure the dying patient and his loved ones that everything's going to be okay, which is what they're expecting the good pastor to do. Or do I sit there in front of them all and speak the truth of God's word, uh, namely that if you die without Christ in your life, you're going to spend eternity in a very real place called hell? To an unbeliever who's about to die and to his family, that message is it's antithetical. It's the, it's the opposite of comforting. And I can tell you from firsthand experience that it is not at all a popular message in that moment under those circumstances. And yet Paul said, I'm innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Acts 20, 27. We have to be willing to tell people the truth, all of it, even when it's not popular. Because if we truly love people... We won't, we won't, we can't hold back one word of the truth. I've asked Daniel Pandolf if he would come and share a testimony about that.
4: Uh, well, it is definitely true that hearing the word can cause great pain. I've also been the recipient of when the preaching of the word heals you as well. Uh, Me and my wife, uh, I was a youth pastor for five years. uh, And uh, part of that time was spent in North Carolina as a youth minister. Uh, I had earned my bachelor's degree in biblical studies and my master's degree in biblical studies. I thought I had done everything right up to this point. The youth ministry that I was in charge of had grown quite large, has had the children's ministry. Uh, And yet at the end of about a year and a half serving at a particular church in North Carolina, I was feeling burnout and exhausted at the hands of a very abusive senior pastor. Uh, This pastor reminded me one day, uh, don't mess up, don't make mistakes or I'll fire you. And it was in that climate of perfection that everything was expected to be perfect. My family was expected to be perfect. I was a newlywed. Uh, Everything was expected to just be spot on. Now I started feeling exhausted, burnt out, and isolated. And it was in that culture that I looked at my wife and I said, we've got to pray that I get out of this. I got to get out. And God opened up the door for me to be a uh, a teacher at Shannon Forest Christian School, Um, And so we moved down. I took a huge pay cut to move uh, to Greenville. And the first year and a half we were here in Greenville, I had no desire to get plugged into a church. For several of you, church has been a great place, a safe place, a wonderful place. For me, it had the exact opposite effect. I hated going to church. It was a place of judgment. It was a place of fear. It was a place of everyone's looking at you. You must be perfect. And I absolutely hated it. So for the first year and a half, I didn't go to church. I didn't really get plugged into a church while we were here in Greenville. I was too tired, I was too exhausted. One day my wife came home and she said, man, I met this great guy named Rob. You've got to listen to him. You got, you got to get a chance to meet him. I said, well, let me listen to a sermon first. You see, I am an ordained Southern Baptist pastor with roots in the Presbyterian church. And I've got to admit, we're a little bit of snobs when it comes to preaching. Uh, and so first time I listened to Rob, I said, he's not AOG. He's got to be Presbyterian or Baptist. He doesn't preach like an AOG guy. Uh, it was, and I was amazed by him. I was amazed at his message. I was amazed at the clarity of preaching. And so I said, all right, we'll, we'll give this church a shot. And so I came in and I was amazed because it was through the preaching of the word and the seriousness by which Rob takes preaching and this whole church takes the message of preaching, how our entire service is centered around preaching, that it started restoring my confidence in what God is doing in the local church. And it was through the preaching of the book of Acts that it started reigniting my passion for ministry again in the local church, that started reinvigorating my love for seeing lives changed in the local church, and it was as much as it was because of Rob. It was more importantly through the preaching of the word, and it was through what God does through the word, which is reignite our hearts with what He does. And so, it was through the preaching of the word that it healed me, and to be perfectly honest, saved my love through uh, for the local church.
0: Thank you. You know, one of the one of my. Uh, the greatest things that I love to brag on about this church is the love of the Word that is here with not, not just the leadership but the people and i 've said from the very beginning i Lord, if I become a pastor, I want to surround myself." with people who love your word and study your word and are serious about understanding your word. And so guys like Daniel, he's an incredible mind, uh, Bible teacher, Pastor Alex, with a fabulous background in Bible, Pastor Chris. I mean, we got guys, lots of you, guys and girls. You're amazing. And, and it's not only knowledge. I don't mean it like we know this much. That's not what I'm saying. I'm talking about just a passion for the word. The fact that this church is so word-focused and, uh, and to see that come out in the lives of people, none, uh, none any more than Daniel and Haley, two of the most genuine people I've ever met. Uh, it's a beautiful thing. It's vitally important to the cause of Christ that we teach the truth of Scripture even when that isn't popular even, uh, when it, when it's not what people want to hear. And that's certainly what Paul did throughout his ministry, no matter his audience. Okay. Let's finish up our story uh, this morning in verse 30. It says he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So even in his captivity, Paul never stopped living out the gospel uh, in his own life. This was perhaps his greatest legacy, that the gospel of Jesus Christ was demonstrated through him because of the power of the Holy Spirit living within him. And that was expressed to everyone around him that he encountered. And it's a testament to the fact that a real, living, breathing, fallible, imperfect human can live out the gospel in power no matter how difficult life becomes. You see, followers of Jesus Christ not only teach the gospel, they live it. It should be evident in every aspect of our lives. Doesn't mean we're perfect. Doesn't mean we don't fail. Doesn't mean we're always a good example of the gospel. In fact, Paul certainly had his own failings. Those are well documented in scripture. I have moments when I have to think about which car I'm driving because one of them currently has an upcountry church bumper sticker on it and the other one doesn't right? And there are times when I want to run someone right off the road into a ditch because sometimes I'm anything but a good example of the gospel being lived out. Sometimes I react in ways to people that aren't Christ-like at all because I'm a very imperfect human. But on the balance, hopefully I'm becoming more like Christ and the evidence of his gospel is hopefully becoming increasingly evident in my life day by day. We're to be living manifestations of the gospel of Jesus Christ walking around on two legs in our neighborhoods and in our homes, at our places of employment and at our schools, at the grocery store and and even on the highway, driving down the road, taking care of each other, always focused on Christ, living counter to the culture, teaching the truth even when it isn't popular, living, breathing examples of the gospel of Jesus Christ lived out in front of a watching world. This is our calling. This is our purpose. This is our mission. We should always be asking ourselves, are we rising to that challenge? And I've asked Mark to come and share one final testimony today about that.
5: Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. those of you who don't know me. There's one reason that drummers a lot of times don't get a microphone, so that's why I have notes to keep it short. But for me, my journey started at Upcountry Church with a phone call at 8 p.m. on uh, October the 19th, 2012. A friend had called me and asked me if I'd play drums in a church in TR for him because of a scheduling conflict on the 22nd. He couldn't be here, and I had no commitments surprisingly for that Sunday, so I agreed. You see, God had already ordained me to be a part of Upcountry Church. Funny thing about it is, he hadn't told me that yet. I was a member of about a 6,000 member church at the time and was very happy to be there. I knew God was calling me, however, to do something more, but I wasn't exactly sure what that was. I just knew that in my spirit there was a hunger, there was a stirring, a desire to step out into the unknown and just simply be real for Jesus and to follow God wherever He was leading me. I thought I was simply coming to play drums. Upcountry Church, I mean, I didn't know anybody there, so I thought. From the first day, I knew it was a very special place. I sensed the Spirit of God here right away, and the hospitality and the friendliness of all of you was amazing. One thing I noticed at Upcountry Church was the love for God and the love for people, and compassion here was genuine. The Word of God is life. It's a never-ending underground spring always washing, always cleansing, and quenching our thirst. It's also food that we desperately need, regardless of where we are spiritually. I thank God for the diligence, compassion, and concern of Pastor Bob. Because of his heart, humility, and love, God slowly began to reveal things to me. They began to sprout up and begin to grow. Some of those things I thought were dead. Quietly under the surface, new things, things I hadn't seen before. And each time I came back to play drums and share my gifts, not to mention getting to jam with this praise band, it was just a blessing. I found myself looking forward to the next time. You see, I've always been a very passionate person, but I've never been afraid to be real for Jesus. Like many of you, Because of my love for God and my uncompromising approach to the gospel, I've lost family and loved ones. But I am committed to living out the gospel of Jesus Christ day by day, always seeking to be where he wants me to be. And standing here now, it's it's just amazing and hard to believe it's been two years and five months. And God has just recently confirmed to me this year that Upcountry Church is home. It's a place where we can live out the gospel of Jesus together. I am thankful for each one of you and look forward to serving God together. God bless you all.
0: Thank you, Mark. You may not know this, but uh, musicians are typically some of the hardest people in the world to deal with, just being honest. It can be temperamental. We don't like to get out of bed in the morning. We don't like to get out of bed ever. Unless you're a classical musician, Pastor Alex. But I'm telling you, this group of musicians at this church, after working with musicians for 20-plus years in churches, is the most authentic group of down-to-earth, non-egotistical, how can I serve Jesus and you, pastor rob in this church people I've ever met in my life. They're amazing, and none more than Mark. He's a real deal. All of them are. Just what you see is what you get. Followers of Christ not only teach the gospel, they live it out. My hope for today, and I'll wrap this up knowing that we would be reading the final chapter of the story of the church in this great book of Acts was to simultaneously try to tell the story of this church, upcountry church through you, to let you know in your own words that although we're not perfect, guys, we're, we're getting it right, okay? People's lives are being radically and eternally changed in this church because of the power of the Holy Spirit living and working inside of you And of course, this is just a small sampling today of what God's doing in this church. But I wonder how many out there, how many outside these walls need to experience what we've been experiencing in here for the past two and a half years. How many services could we fill up? How many lives could be changed forever if they simply knew what God was doing here in our lives? I wanted to tell you today that the spirit of God has been stirring in me greatly over these last few months. He's accelerating the vision for this church in my heart to reach every single person that we possibly can with the gospel who's currently living outside of God's will right now all around us. And fulfilling that vision, albeit his responsibility ultimately, falls to us to do our part. And it's a broad vision with many components and that'll be progressively, I'm sure, realized for what I hope is many decades to come. But one of our next steps, I believe with all of my heart, is to go where the people are. Paul never hid himself away in the the out-of-the-way places. In fact, everywhere he went, he made it a point to go where the people were. He went to the city centers, the hub of activity in each town, and he engaged people where they were. And my heart is heavy for traveler's rest, for our city. And I believe that in the future, we're going to plant other churches out of this church. That is part of the vision God gave us for this from day one before we even got back from Alaska. We will pastor a church that will plant other churches. But we have to be the most effective that we can be at reaching this city first. And that means going where the people are. Furman University recently completed a study that they've published that shows over 500,000 people, over a half of a million people are accessing the Swamp Rabbit Trail through our town every year on foot and on bicycles. All you have to do is go into downtown Traveler's Rest on a sunny day and you'll see every restaurant packed, every green space occupied, and about every hundred feet of that trail clogged with human beings. As wonderful and as blessed as we've been to have been in this facility that I'm more thankful for than you could ever know, we're tucked away, out of sight, and largely out of mind from our city in a building that is really too small to house many more than we have now anyway. Listen, I'm absolutely convinced and convicted that we are to take what God has started here with you and go where the people are. It's time to move this into the heart of our city. And I wish I could tell you this morning that we have all that worked out already, but we don't. Because it's going to involve each one of us. Our time, our tools, and I mean power tools, our money, our resources, our passion, our excitement, but more than anything, it's going to require each of us to have a burden to share what we have here with others. Otherwise, we can just stay encapsulated here and add a family or two each year and do nothing more. We have to have a burden to share this with others. There are some potential locations downtown, some existing buildings that would be phenomenal places that are right on the swamp rabbit trail, right in the center of our city facilities that would not only allow us to have access to literally hundreds of thousands of people walking past our front doors every year, but also places large enough to be able to invite them in. We're pursuing those options faithfully and as diligently as we can. And I'm simply telling you this morning that I hope and pray very soon we'll be able to share uh, that location with you that God has made available to us. But as of right now, we don't know exactly where that is. So what I'm asking you today as I close is to please, please begin to pray. I mean, actually set time aside and pray a lot about this move and ask him what part in it would he have you to play? Because I completely trust him that as the right door is open to us, hopefully sooner rather than later, but whenever it is that our hearts and our minds will be in unity to move forward, that he will provide through us what we need to realize this next step for our church and ultimately for our city, for Traveler's Rest. I'm asking you to pray with an open heart and with an open mind. And ask him what he would have you to do. And I'm going to do the same thing, okay? I love you guys. I sure do love you guys. And I am profoundly grateful, like Eucharisteo kind of grateful, to be on this journey with you. Let's pray.